The Capitol Hill Committee investigating the January 6th attack has voted to subpoena former President Donald Trump. Members say the evidence shows Trump was at the center of plans to overturn the election and ultimately the violent insurrection. It's Thursday, October 13th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the likelihood of Mr. Trump testifying. Also, we'll hear from the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, following a vote by the U.N. General Assembly to condemn Russia's annexation of Ukraine. Conspiracy theory provocateur Alex Jones has been ordered to pay nearly a billion dollars to the families of Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting victims, but will they ever see that money? These stories and the forecast thunderstorms are on the way with rain due to spend the night. That's all coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Former President Donald Trump has been subpoenaed to testify before the House Select Committee investigating last year's insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. The panel's vote today was unanimous. The vice chair, Republican Liz Cheney, says, quote, we're obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. The vote came toward the end of what may be the investigating committee's final public hearing on the events leading to, during, and after the attack on the Capitol. NPR's Lexi Chapittle says the findings are expected to be released in a few months. The January 6th committee's first public hearing in more than two months featured newly obtained documents from the Secret Service, showing that the administration had advance warning that the day could lead to violence. In one email read by committee member Adam Schiff, a source passed along intelligence that the far-right group The Proud Boys planned to come to D.C. armed and outnumber the police. The source went on to say their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate further. Other documents showed that the morning of January 6th, the Secret Service observed people armed with a pistol, assault rifle, and other firearms. Lexi Chapital, NPR News, The Capitol. A jury is recommending that the young man who killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida in 2018 be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. NPR's Laurel Wamsley reports a death sentence for Nicholas Cruz would have required unanimity among the jurors. Jurors were unanimous that there had been aggravating factors in the case of Nicholas Cruz. But at least one juror concluded that those aggravating factors did not outweigh mitigating circumstances. Elon Al-Hadef, the father of one of those killed, was among the family members angered by the verdict. I'm disgusted with our legal system. I'm disgusted with those jurors that you can allow 17 dead and 17 others shot and wounded and not give the death penalty. What do we have the death penalty for? Defense attorneys argued that Cruz's violent outbursts were the result of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. He'll be formally sentenced to life in prison next month. Laurel Wamsley, NPR News. The annual inflation rate stayed high in September, with consumer prices rising 8.2 percent from the year before. The government reports that even though gas prices saw a major decline last month, increases in the cost of shelter, food and medical care kept inflation running hot. September inflation rate puts retirees on the path to the biggest cost of living adjustment in decades. Minutes after the Consumer Price Index report was released, Social Security announced benefits would increase 8.7 percent starting in January. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The nearly 50 migrants who were flown to Martha's Vineyard last month are a step closer to being granted temporary immigration status to stay in the U.S. A sheriff in Texas has signed documents that certify the migrants were a potential victim of crime. That could help qualify them for a so-called U-visa. The Bear County Sheriff says the steps he's taken will ensure the migrants will be available as witnesses in his criminal investigation. That probe is looking into possible unlawful restraint. The flights from Texas were orchestrated by Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis. Boston police are investigating the reported kidnapping of a child. Officers say someone reported an 8-year-old boy was taken by a woman in a vehicle about 1 this afternoon on Commonwealth Avenue on the Boston University campus near Marsh Chapel. Police say the suspect vehicle is a Mercedes van with a white ventilation bubble on the roof and several stickers on the back of the vehicle. Schools across Massachusetts report student mental health problems have become more severe in large part because of the pandemic. Advocates for children say there aren't enough school counselors to meet the growing need. WBR's Vanessa Ochavillo has more. Counselors don't just write recommendation letters or help students choose classes. They now help students process grief or find housing as they reel from death and financial loss from the pandemic. That means larger caseloads, says Bob Bardwell, the executive director of the Massachusetts School Counselors Association. Most counselors leave at the end of the school day saying, I just I didn't get through everything I needed to get through. And that can be pretty frustrating to know your job is never over. The state would need to hire over a thousand more counselors to meet the recommended ratio of one counselor to every 250 students. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochavillo. Got stormy weather in the forecast. Meteorologist Daniel Noyes says the unsettled weather will begin with a few hit or miss showers the rest of this afternoon. The bulk of the steadier rain arrives this evening with downpours, embedded thunder overnight into tomorrow morning. The rain will gradually taper off, but probably not until midday to early afternoon. Rain totals will be one to two inches for most of us. Some localized urban flooding may result. It's going to be a slow Friday morning commute for sure. And southeast wind gust of 45 miles per hour may result in some pockets of wind damage tomorrow morning. The wind is going to subside rapidly once the rain comes to an end. It is 68 degrees now. Tomorrow's high should be around 70 again. The weekend's looking a lot more promising if you like sunshine. Sunny skies both Saturday and Sunday. Highs from 60 to 70. It's 407. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. And Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We begin with two setbacks on the legal front for former President Donald Trump. In one case, the Supreme Court turned away Trump's appeal to intervene in his legal battle to allow a special master to review classified documents the FBI seized from his Mar-a-Lago home. Separately, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol has voted unanimously to subpoena the former president in its investigation into that attack. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. 
We're going to stay on this development. Committee members spent what may be their final hearing laying out what witnesses say Trump knew about plans to violently disrupt the certification of Joe Biden's presidential election win and what he did when that violence erupted. And Pierre's Deirdre Walsh is at the Capitol. And Deirdre, what do we know about the committee's intentions to seek testimony from Trump? Well, as we heard, they voted unanimously to subpoena the former president for documents and testimony under oath. This was a little unexpected going into today's hearing. We learned that they were planning to do this sort of midway through the hearing. This is kind of an unprecedented step, at least in modern times. The panel has been debating about whether or not to issue a subpoena to former President Trump. The chairman, uh, Benny Thompson, and ranking member Liz Cheney met with House Speaker Pelosi late last month, and I'm told they did give the speaker a heads up that they were going to take this step today. But we should say it's unlikely that Trump is going to cooperate. He is likely going to go to court and could fight the subpoena. There are serious separation of powers issues here about, uh, you know, uh, who was a sitting president at the time, about the events of January 6th that they want to talk to him. We should also say that the committee is wrapping up its work. The panel expires at the end of this year. So even though they probably don't expect Trump to cooperate, they wanted to make the case that he should have to appear. Deidre, the panel described what the Secret Service and other agencies heard in advance. What did they hear about what the agents knew and what they told Trump? I mean, this was some new information that we got today. The, the panel in recent weeks has gotten hundreds of thousands of emails and documents from the Secret Service after they had to subpoena the agency in July. The committee showed new emails today and an intel report, parts of that, that the Secret Service had information before January 6th that people were planning to come to Washington and to cause violence. We saw emails in late December that they were talking about reports about violent rhetoric on Parler, which is a social media platform, about threats to protectees, people that the Secret Service protect, like Vice President Pence. So they were aware of this potential. There were also messages from the Secret Service about their concerns about security, and one exchange on the day that President Trump lost an effort in the Supreme Court warning those around the president that he was in a bad mood. How did the committee connect the dots on what Trump did while the siege was underway? They showcased testimony from people at the White House telling the committee that the president was in his office or in a conference room near his office watching the attack on television. They remarked to each other. They were asked by the members in tape depositions about what he was doing during those hours. Here's Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin. Until approximately 4 p.m. over the next two hours and 40 minutes, the president stayed in the White House dining room attached to the Oval Office and watched this unprecedented assault take place at the Capitol. And what were members of Congress doing as this mob approached? I mean, this, I think, was the most dramatic uh, stuff that we saw today at today's hearing. We saw behind-the-scenes video, never-before-seen video, of the top leaders on Capitol Hill in the secure location. People like Speaker Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Here's some of what they showed us of Pelosi talking to Vice President Pence, strategizing about how they were going to reopen the House chamber and talking about how the rioters had made a mess. We've gotten a very bad report about the condition of, of the um, house floor with defecation and all that kind of thing as well. I don't think that that's hard to clean up. Definitely a lot of new dramatic material at what is expected to be the final hearing of the January 6th committee.
That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh reporting from the Capitol. Deirdre, thank you. Thank you. The United Nations has a message for Russia. We condemn the attempted annexation of four regions of Ukraine. Also, you will not be allowed to intimidate the world. Yesterday, the UN voted overwhelmingly to demand Russia's withdrawal from Ukraine and call on all countries not to recognize Russia's illegal annexations of four regions in Ukraine. But does the UN have any way to enforce the tough talk? Linda Thomas-Greenfield is the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you very much, and I'm delighted to be here. This vote is designed to send a strong signal. I saw how you put it. You said it means Ukraine's borders stay the same in the eyes of the world stage. But, and it's a significant, but this is not legally binding. So what do you hope that it will actually accomplish? Well, I think it accomplishes two things. First, it sends a message to the Ukrainian people that the world has not forgotten them and that we will not stand by and allow Russia to get away with what is truly an illegal act against everything that we all believe in. But the second part is even more important. It sends a message to Putin and to the Russians that they are isolated, that they will not get away with this, and that the world will condemn their actions. We got a monumental 143 member states to stand up for territorial integrity, and their isolation here is very clear. Oh. I heard you say it's about sending a message to the Ukrainians, to Russia, but the UN has sent a lot of messages. This is not the first UN resolution on Russia this year. Back on March 2nd, y'all voted to demand that Russia immediately end military operations in Ukraine, pull out. That obviously didn't happen. So let me push you on this. What gives you confidence? Mm-hmm. Do you have any confidence this latest resolution might change Russia's behavior? You know, I do have confidence. And you have to always approach these kinds of situations from a position of strength. Putin said he was going to carry out this action in two weeks and it would be over. And we're seven months into it. And the Ukrainians are fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their country. But the Ukrainians have the backing of the world and Russia is doing this alone. President Biden warned the other day about the threat of a nuclear Armageddon. He said that was his words. He says this is the highest risk it has been in 60 years. In a CNN interview this week, pressed on whether he believes that Putin will actually use nuclear weapons, he said, I don't think he will. Has something changed between those two comments to temper concern in any way? Uh, I don't think anything has changed. Uh, We've heard all of Putin's rhetoric since the beginning. And we do not think these are the kinds of words of a country that is confident in their position. We take Putin's threats, however, very seriously. And we're not going to allow him to intimidate us by his rhetoric. He knows what would happen if he uses this kind of weapon. And we've communicated that directly, as well as privately with the Russians about what the consequences might be. I wonder, though, you know, with him even hinting at the prospect of any possibility of the threat of nuclear escalation, does that change the way you think about trying to strike a balance between pressuring Russia, isolating Russia versus provoking 
Russia? I think the president has been very clear that we're not going to do anything from our side to escalate this war. And the provocations are all coming from the Russian side. They invaded Ukraine. They are attacking Ukrainian civilians and Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. They're attacking a, a nuclear plant. So they're escalating and they are the aggressor. But our intention is to continue to support the Ukrainian people's right to defend themselves. Ambassador, you gave us, gave NPR an interview last month in which you talked about evidence that Russia is detaining Ukrainians, forcibly relocating them to Russia, where it is holding them, you said, in so-called filtration camps. Russia disputes this. Can you give any update on what's being done to investigate? I mean, we're still seeing evidence of Russia using these filtration camps and taking Ukrainians into Russia. Uh, We've seen numbers as high as thousands a day of people who are being forcibly removed from Ukraine and taken into far distant places in Russia. And it absolutely has to be condemned. We're doing everything possible to collect evidence of what they're doing so that they can be held accountable, but also that these people can be reunited with their families and particularly children who have been filtrated and forcibly adopted. And to be clear about the scale, it sounds like you're not saying this slowed down in any way. This is thousands of people every day. Yeah, we've not seen any evidence that it slowed down. Last thing, this week saw Russian missile strikes against a dozen or so Ukrainian cities, including ones that had not been hit in months, including in the heart of the capital, Kyiv. You're a diplomat, so perhaps I know the answer to this, but it sounds like you do still believe there is a diplomatic resolution, there is a diplomatic way this war ends? We have never given up on diplomacy to find a solution to this war. The Russians chose to push aside diplomacy and uh, chose to attack Ukraine. But we've also been clear that we are not going to engage with Putin on diplomacy on the Ukrainian war without the Ukrainians. And so Ukraine has to be part of any discussions about a diplomatic way forward with the Russians. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, on the line there from New York. She is the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador, thank you. Thank you so much, and it's great to be here with you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Paycheck Protection Program Loan Forgiveness Unpacked. That's still ahead. On Wall Street, a wild ride for the Dow today. The index closed 2.83% higher. That's 828 points. After a 1,300-point intraday turnaround, the Dow finally settled at 30,039. S&P rose more than 2.5% to close at 36.70. The Nasdaq gained about 2.25% to finish the day at 10,649. It's 4.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. And Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's On Beckett, running at the Paramount Theater in Boston, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. 
A new restaurant and bar with indoor mini golf courses is set to open in the Seaport District in Boston next week. Putt Shack Boston has raised $150 million and will occupy more than 26,000 square feet on two floors of Pier 4 Boulevard. It will feature four nine-hole golf courses with waterfront views and what they call an upscale nightclub vibe. The company is planning venues across the country. Marketplace has all the day's business news coming up at 6.30. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. And Tapas 529 in Melrose for sharing and sampling Spanish and Mediterranean taste sensations. Reserving now for private holiday parties, tapas529.com. Showers off and on this afternoon. Some of the heaviest rain and gusty winds are holding off until this evening and overnight tonight. Rain should finally ease up tomorrow afternoon. Tomorrow's high is near 70. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at klaviyo.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We've been talking this week about the Paycheck Protection Program, which effectively paid businesses to keep workers on the payroll during the pandemic. That money came in the form of loans, and the vast majority of those loans have been forgiven more than 90 percent. That is, despite the program being criticized for giving money to undeserving recipients, even outright fraudsters. So who are the small percentage of borrowers with unforgiven PPP loans? Austin Fast and I have been reporting on this for NPR's investigations team, and what we found may surprise you. When I visited Candy Crawford at her home in Truro, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod, she gave me a tour of her truck, which she jokingly calls her purse on wheels. Because it's got everything and anything in there. If I need a saw, I have a saw. Um, and then just whatever debris coming from gardens, bags of fertilizer up in the front. I mean, it's a hodgepodge. Crawford owns a small landscaping company called Handy Candy. When COVID shutdowns began, she got a PPP loan of about $1,000. Not much, but it tided her over until she was allowed to start working outdoors again. I mean, it's always wonderful to get $1,000 in the mail. So it was just like a little extra cash, which was great. But trying to get that loan forgiven has been an aggravation she never expected. Crawford got the loan through PayPal rather than a traditional bank. Applying was easy, but a few months later, she got some confusing emails. They said her loan had been transferred from WebBank to Customers Bank and would now be serviced by Windsor Advantage. She'd never heard of any of those companies, and she wondered if this was some kind of scam. It wasn't. Crawford ended up being bounced from company to company to company for months as she tried to figure out the status of her loan and how to get it forgiven. I would say we probably have at least 60 emails going back and forth, at least. This is crazy. Pass the buck. Who is going to answer my question for me? PPP loans were easy to get and easy to forgive. 
But more than two years after Crawford got hers, she was still waiting for forgiveness. That put her in a small minority of borrowers because 91% of all the loans have been forgiven so far. The money was for businesses with no more than 500 workers. But NPR has found the smallest businesses, those with just one employee, have the most unforgiven loans, 14%. That number is just 3% for businesses with at least 10 employees. Those one-person businesses include barbers, janitors, Uber drivers, hairdressers. They seem like obvious examples of the type of workers who would most need support. Hi. How are you? Good. I'm Sasha. I'm Katie. Katie, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. You too. Katie Escher co-owns a Cape Cod clothing and gift shop called Artichoke in East Ham, Massachusetts. It's one of dozens of tiny businesses we contacted whose loans are still listed as unforgiven. Right here, you're seeing a lot of our salt t-shirts because that's our most popular design. Our hats in the collection, tumblers, sweatshirts. Artichoke got an $8,000 loan through Square. That's the company lots of businesses use to take credit card payments. But when Escher asks Square about her forgiveness status, it tells her to ask the SBA, the Small Business Administration. I don't know what to do. I can't get a hold of the SBA. And then when I talk to a human being on Square, they tell us to contact the SBA. So we're just in teeter-totter land here. We heard about headaches like this from a bunch of people with PPP loans. And some borrowers make errors that end up botching their applications. Escher said if you're a busy small company with no support staff, you can't delegate the work. We wear many hats, and sometimes you have to choose which hat you have to wear based on the season or the time. I wish that we had someone to say, hey, we need to figure this out, but we don't. We also spoke with people who said they got bad advice from accountants or didn't understand the rules. Others told us they just haven't gotten around to applying for forgiveness or thought it was automatic. One woman I called, a hair braider in Arizona, asked if I could give her information about her loan status. Meanwhile, unforgiven loans may be past due and accumulating interest. Not resolving them can damage a person's credit. And there's a more nefarious reason some loans remain unforgiven. By the government's own admission, billions of PPP dollars were lost to fraud. It went to fictitious companies. Here's MIT economist David Otter. They just ran away with the money. They never existed. They got the money. They're gone. They won't be paying it back because <laughs> they left the country if they were ever here. But a major reason some businesses have unforgiven loans has to do with where they applied for the money. Some borrowers got loans from traditional banks like Chase and Bank of America. Those loans are mostly forgiven. But if you went through a financial technology company, that's a different story. These fintechs, as they're called, have names like Wompley, Lendistry, and Prestamos. Several fintechs have been investigated by Congress for ultra-fast lending practices that led to high rates of fraudulent PPP loans. Maybe you've heard of some of them. Bluevine, Cross River Bank, Celtic Bank, and Cabbage. The amount of stress caused by dealing with Cabbage, that almost was like a second catastrophic event. Nancy Kelly owns a small accounting firm that got a PPP loan for $60,000 through Cabbage. That part was simple. Getting it forgiven was not. And she realized she was far from alone when she discovered a Facebook group for Cabbage customers. All these small businesses, they were just torturing them. And I said to myself, well, this should be the basis of a class action lawsuit. Actually, it is. 
Cabbage has been sued in federal court. The suit claims Cabbage was quick to approve PPP loans. It brags on its website about an average wait time of four hours, but dropped the ball when it came to forgiving them. In an email to NPR, the CEO of K-Servicing, a Cabbage affiliate, wrote, We will continue to work with our borrowers to help ensure they take the steps required to obtain forgiveness by the SBA. But last week, Cabbage and K-Servicing filed for bankruptcy. The SBA said Cabbage specifically has gotten a lot of complaints, but it doesn't see a broader problem with financial technology companies. It also said some fintech loans may not be forgiven because borrowers are procrastinating or their forgiveness applications aren't due yet. The SBA said it expects most remaining loans to be forgiven this fall. Back on Cape Cod, Candy Crawford of Handy Candy Landscaping nearly reached her wit's end trying to get her $1,000 loan forgiven when at one point a customer service agent told her her loan had a problem and there was a hold on it. I said, a hold? What does that mean? She said, I am not able to disclose that information to you. I said, okay, so this is my loan, but you can't tell me why my loan has a hold? She said, no, I can't tell you anything about it. I'm like, wow. After I met Crawford, I contacted all the companies involved in her loan. A few days later, she got an email that read, we are pleased to announce that the Customers Bank Forgiveness Portal is now ready to accept your forgiveness request. And last week, she learned that more than two years after she got her loan, it's been forgiven. But for many other businesses, the quest for PPP loan forgiveness continues. I'm Austin Fast. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer, NPR News. And NPR's Sierra Lyons also contributed to this story. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com, and prompt.com, with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at prompt.com. The power grid of the future will probably rely heavily on the sun and the wind, and communities will need to hold the electricity that's generated before it's needed. We need a facility that will store energy so we don't have to turn off our appliances. An old approach is getting some new attention. The idea that you can create a kind of battery from water and gravity. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. After months of testimony and investigation, the House Select Committee examining the January 6th attack on the Capitol voted today to subpoena former President Donald Trump. As NPR Susan Davis tells us, the panel is trying to show that Trump was the key figure in the events leading up to the deadly riot and remains a clear and present danger to democracy. Well, this hearing so far has largely been a collection of greatest hits, right? And they're trying to sort of broadly tell the story of what I think at this point has been fairly established facts around the events of January 6th. But the intent of today seems very clearly to be 
the role the former president played, that at every point he is the central figure in the events leading up to January 6th, the events that happened that day, and in ongoing efforts that continue not only to deny the outcome of the 2020 election, but as Congresswoman Liz Cheney said, that this is still remains a threat to democracy. That's NPR's Susan Davis. Mortgage rates have hit a 20-year high in the U.S. of just about 7 percent for a 30-year fixed-rate loan. NPR's Chris Arnold tells us that's putting home ownership out of reach for millions of Americans. Mortgage rates this week are averaging 6.9 percent, according to the government-sponsored firm Freddie Mac. You have to go all the way back to April of 2002 to see rates that high. And it's been more than 40 years since rates rose by this much. They started the year at 3 percent. So if you buy a house with a $400,000 loan and look at the monthly payment, the higher rates now add nearly $1,000 a month more to buy the same house. That's throwing cold water on the housing market. The pace of home sales has dropped for the past seven months. Most economists think, though, that a shortage of homes for sale will stop prices from falling very dramatically. Chris Arnold, NPR News. Meanwhile, stocks finished broadly higher today on Wall Street. The Dow was up nearly 3 percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. President Biden's newly announced humanitarian parole program would allow up to 24,000 Venezuelan migrants a legal path into the U.S., and it could have implications for the migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard last month. That's according to Boston-based Lawyers for Civil Rights, which represents migrants. WBUR's Cristela Guerra has more. Executive Director Ivan Espinosa Madrigal calls Biden's new policy highly concerning. He traveled to the U.S.-Mexico border with his organization this week to look into the circumstances surrounding how 49 migrants from Texas ended up on Martha's Vineyard. First, it is not designed to welcome and protect. It's really designed to limit, extraordinarily limit, the number of migrants who can be processed in a safe and secure way. The new program requires those applying to enter the U.S. by air and have a financial sponsor. The Biden announcement comes as the 49 migrants just received U-Visa certifications, which will allow them to request humanitarian immigration protections. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. The Woburn Police Department is investigating whether one of its officers helped plan the 2017 rally of hundreds of white nationalists in Charlottesville, Charlottesville, Virginia. The department announced today it's placed Officer John Donnelly on paid leave pending the investigation. Donnelly has not responded to WBUR's request for comment. Recent rains are slowly easing the drought, but there's still a long way to go. Today's report from the U.S. Drought Monitor shows more than 87 percent of Massachusetts is at least in a state of moderate drought route. That's down from 92 percent a week ago. We've got a lot of rain on the way in the next 24 hours. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus. Committed to reimagining the office for the needs of today's workforce. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com enterprise. And the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. Heavy rain and gusty winds coming in this evening and tonight. Rain should finally ease up by tomorrow afternoon. Could have a couple of inches during that time. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. 
and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. To the vote today to subpoena a president. The House January 6th committee wants to question former President Trump over his role in the Capitol insurrection. Those in favor will say aye. 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 Those opposed is no. In the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it. The vote was unanimous, and it came at the very end of today's hearing, in which the panel presented a constellation of evidence, some old, some new, all of it aimed at showing that Trump was fully aware he had lost the election, yet continued to discredit the results and direct an armed mob to the Capitol. Joining me now is one of the committee members, Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar of California. Congressman, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mary Louise. Uh, The subpoena. President, uh, former President Trump has weighed in, um, weighing in uh, about the timing, asking in a a post on his platform, uh, Truth Social, asking, why did the committee wait till the very end, the very final moments of their last meeting? Because he wrote, the committee is a total bust. He went on to say, a laughingstock all over the world, end quote. Um, Congressman, I I guess that might give a little bit of a tip as to how likely he is to cooperate with this subpoena. What are you expecting? Well, I don't know if we can take anything from uh, the president's tweets based on on past history. Um, uh, But I will say that, you know, we put a lot of thought behind this. I think the the former president's, you know, answer would probably be the same, whether we did this earlier in the year or we did this today. Uh, The facts are 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 very clear that, you know, we have done over a thousand interviews. We pledged to the American public that we were going to get to the bottom uh, of what happened. Uh, in order to do that, we feel that we need to hear directly from him because all roads have pointed to Donald Trump. And as I mentioned, the vote was unanimous, but our Capitol Hill team is reporting that y'all did debate it intensely. What were the pros and cons? That whenever the nine of us get together and have conversations about uh, where the committee is going, uh, there's always you know discussion. Um, you know, because all of us feel strongly about protecting democracy. Um, but there are rarely any disagreements uh, among the nine of us on where we go. And there were, you know, there was not, you know, disagreements uh, with this decision. You know, we feel that it's in the best interest of the committee. Uh, we feel that it uh, uh, meets uh, the, the moment and does exactly what we pledge to do. Which was there is discussion the over, over issues of separation of power? The history history has shown that past pres, former presidents have uh, provided testimony to Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some have been uh, subpoenaed. Some have, have been subpoenaed by Congress. Uh, a couple presidents, uh, subpoena, former presidents, uh, have been subpoenaed by Congress and come before us. Many presidents, uh, I think the list is seven, who have provided testimony in some way uh, to Congress. So this is not unprecedented at all. Uh, in fact, it would be unprecedented if we didn't do our job uh, and if we didn't seek uh, to turn over every rock to find out what happened on that violent insurrection, uh, or if we gave the former president a pass uh, to uh, to not share his side of the story. What's your number one question for him? 
but we're not going to get into uh, we'll see we'll see how that goes but i mean clearly the committee has been you know very clear uh why didn't he do anything why didn't he do anything to try to help those of us who were here at the capitol uh the record has shown that he knew there was going to be violence uh, yet uh, for 187 minutes, uh, he was in the White House not lifting a finger while law enforcement uh, was getting pummeled uh, on the on each side of the Capitol. Uh, that's one of the many questions we have. So questions about timing, questions about state of mind, which I know is what you focused your statements on today. Well, we shall see how that all plays out. And we appreciate your joining us today. Thank you, Congressman. Thanks, Mary Louise. Uh, it's California Representative Pete Aguilar, Democrat, serving on that House January 6th panel. $965 million. That's how much the conspiracy theorist Alex Jones has been ordered to pay to the families of those killed at Sandy Hook Elementary. A jury in Connecticut announced the verdict yesterday in the defamation trial over the lies Jones spread about the shooting. But there's a lot that has to happen between the verdict and the families actually receiving any money. Here to talk about that is NPR's Becky Sullivan. Hi, Becky. Hello. This is an enormous amount of money, mm -hmm. but will the families really get this much? Well, that is the big question. Um, well, first off, Alex Jones could end up owing even more money uh, in the form of attorney's fees or other punitive damages with this case. There's a couple other cases as well. Um, but the amount here also could go down. Jones's legal team has said that they'll appeal the amounts. Um, and just to give you a sense, the highest total for any one family was uh, $240 million to the relatives of a first grade teacher who was killed. So Jones's lawyers are likely going to argue that that is excessive, and it is possible that the trial judge or an appeals court could agree. Um, I asked Sachin Pandya about this. He's a law professor at the University of Connecticut, and he said this one is just really hard to predict. This is an extraordinary case. It's hard to find points of comparisons, not just with respect to the large damage amounts, but because of the underlying conduct found by the jury to be so morally blameworthy, so egregious, it's hard to know exactly what happens next. Becky, in terms of whatever assets Jones might have that mm -hmm. could be given to the families, what is his financial situation? Yeah, this is also very much an open question. Um, on one hand, by a lot of measures, Jones does have a lot of money. And the verdict, by the way, is against both Jones and his company, Free Speech Systems, which includes both InfoWars and also his very lucrative sales business. He sells stuff like alternative medicines and survival gear. And a few months ago, in a related case, a business forensic expert testified that Jones and this company, Free Speech Systems, could be worth as much as $270 million. The expert said that InfoWars was at one point bringing in $50 million in revenue or more every year. Um, but earlier this year, when it looked like these defamation judgments were probably going to happen, Jones's company, Free Speech Systems, filed for bankruptcy. Uh, it claims that it had a huge debt to another Alex Jones company, one that hasn't been named in the family lawsuits. Lawyers for the families uh, say that this whole thing is essentially a fraudulent scheme to siphon off the assets of free speech systems in order to insulate it from having to pay off these huge defamation judgments. A bankruptcy court is working to sort all of that out now. Meanwhile, InfoWars appears to still be bringing in thousands and thousands of dollars every day. And these lawyers are going to want to figure out how can we get some of that money. So how might this yes. all play out from here? Well, it's worth noting that Jones himself, uh, just in the last day, has openly mocked the idea that he will ever pay this amount of money, a billion dollars. 
Uh, he has vowed to appeal. He is asking his viewers for money to help fund this legal effort. So, you know, in terms of how it might play out, I put the question to Nick Kofroth. He is a bankruptcy attorney based in Los Angeles. He said it's unlikely that Alex Jones has a billion dollars sitting in a bank account ready to pay out. Instead, maybe the families could get paid out over time. But Alex Jones's ability to pay out over time, of course, depends on continuing this lucrative business broadcasting conspiracy theories. If Alex Jones decides that continuing to make podcasts is just going to enrich the people that he's harmed, then Alex Jones might very well just go off the airwaves and that might just count as a win. And just to note here, Sasha, there is still one more damages trial, defamation trial for one more family tentatively scheduled for later this year. Really interesting. That's NPR's Becky Sullivan. Thank you. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. As the American Southwest suffers its worst drought in 1,200 years, there is a lot less water in Lake Powell on the Colorado River. That means a longstanding effort to restore habitat downstream in the Grand Canyon is in jeopardy. From member station KNAU in Flagstaff, Arizona, Melissa Sivany reports. The Grand Canyon starts 15 miles downriver from Lake Powell at a place called Lee's Ferry. It's where boats launch for trips through the canyon. As well as navigating sometimes scary rapids, boaters like these also have to find a place to camp every night. The best spots are sandbars that form from the rise and fall of the river, says scientist and longtime river guide Katie Chapman. You don't have to go bushwhacking to find a place to camp. Sandbars were once common in the canyon, built by the sand washed down in annual spring and summer floods. Then, in the 1960s, the dam was built, and beaches started to vanish. Chapman says that's a problem, not just for river runners, but also native plants and animals. There's kind of some calm, calm areas in the back, back of the eddies, kind of tucked in behind the sandbars, um, called backwaters or return channels that are a critical habitat for a bunch of the native aquatic species. That includes four endangered native fish. In the 90s, federal river managers started to experiment with artificial floods, ramping up the water released from the dam over several days. These floods are small compared to what used to come down the river, but four or five times higher than typical dam releases. It worked. Here's engineers cheering as an artificial flood is released from the dam in 2016. Beach building floods happened most autumns between 2012 and 2018. And then we hit these drought conditions. Paul Grams is a hydrologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. With Lake Powell lower than it's ever been and hydropower at risk, the flood program is in trouble. So we have a condition now where it's been uh, it's now four years since the last high flow and the sandbars have eroded a lot. One. This group of boaters at Lee's Ferry are actually scientists heading out on their yearly trip to document that erosion. Karen Kessner is part of the team. We are going to be mapping sandbars and we'll have crews looking at vegetation on sandbars and essentially we're monitoring change. She's seen that change firsthand on dozens of river trips. You see banks breaking off, cut banks forming. Some scientists want to switch artificial floods from fall to spring when snowmelt bolsters Lake Powell's level. That could help balance the need for floods with the demand for hydropower. 
Decisions about river management are made by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation with a diverse group of advisors, among them Matt Rice of American Rivers. If we fail, you know, the Grand Canyon could go dry. If Lake Powell drops to Deadpool, no water can pass through the dam. That's not expected to happen within the next five years, but Rice points out in a climate-changed world, the drought may never end. Ultimately, you know, we, I think we have one tool, right? It's like we have to use less water. Rice says his goal is to make sure the pain of water shortage doesn't fall unfairly on plants and animals in the canyon. I think about the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon every morning when I wake up and every night when I go to bed. I have to be optimistic. If this place isn't worthy of saving, then what in the world is? The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation declined to give an interview for this story, but says they're considering whether to do a fall flood this year. For NPR News, I'm Melissa Sivany. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR, Jeopardy! is giving previous losers another try. Also, more evidence the Korean film industry is on a roll. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Ad Club's Women's Leadership Forum. In person on October 24th, hear from influential speakers and visionary women driving positive change in the world. Tickets at adclub.org. Salem State University School of Graduate Studies, hosting an in-person open house this Saturday, 10 to noon. salemstate.edu slash graduate. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. The forecast from now until about midday tomorrow, wet. Windy, too. Showers and thunderstorms could be heaviest before 2 a.m. Then they should whip up again in time for tomorrow's morning commute. Maybe an inch or two of rain that could cause localized flooding. Things should start to dry out tomorrow afternoon. Tomorrow's high is about 70. Should stay about 70 over the weekend with mainly sunny skies due in for Saturday and Sunday. It's 449. WBUR supporters include the Museum of Science. It's time to talk about mental health. Join the conversation at Mental Health Mind Matters, a new groundbreaking exhibit. Tickets at MOS.org. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. We now have a story about persistence, an iconic game show, and the power of second chances. All Things Considered, Michael Levitt reports. Sometimes, life doesn't give you a second chance. That's something that Nikki Percaro knows all too well. And it was a lesson she learned in front of millions when she competed on the game show Jeopardy! something that she had fantasized about for decades. I have been into Jeopardy! since I was about seven. If you remember the old Nintendo consoles, they made a Jeopardy! game for it. 
course, everyone's like, yeah, the seven-year-old, this should be a joke. But I'm a speed reader, so the minute the question flashed on the screen, I hit the button and started typing the answer, which I'd memorized. Everyone realized really quickly that I was hustling them. A lot of people will tell you, you can't prep for Jeopardy. That is utter nonsense. My fiance built me like a little platform and we had like a little buzzer system so I could practice. She read about game theory, stopped drinking alcohol, even used hand strengtheners so she could buzz in faster. I felt like an Olympic athlete. And when she finally stepped on the Jeopardy stage last year, all that training seemed to be paying off. What is perfect pitch? What is a kickoff? What is sunshine? What is base? That's right. By the end of the first two rounds, she was in first place with a healthy lead of almost $6,000. And then we get to final Jeopardy. And here's the clue. Bright new lighting installed in 1880 on a street that crosses Manhattan diagonally led to this three-word nickname. If you've ever had a marble just rattling around in your brain, like it's there, but you can't catch it. And that's what I, I, I knew it. I knew if I had 10 to 15 more seconds, I could have pulled out the answer. Nikki did not catch the marble. And in the end, you, Austin Weiss, are our new Jeopardy champion. You'll be back her dream of winning Jeopardy slipped through her incredibly buff fingers and she didn't take it well. I promptly vomited in a trash can, which they cut out, so that was really good. And I was really devastated. I felt that I had worked 30 years for, for nothing. Okay, maybe you think Nikki's reaction was a bit intense, but this really was her one and only shot because the rule was that if you competed on Jeopardy and lost, you weren't allowed to come back. You know, we're fed all these things in the media of, okay, you don't reach your goal, try, try again. But with Jeopardy, you were done, that was it. At least, that's what it seemed like, because next week, something special is happening. This is Jeopardy's second chance. A second chance competition. And guess who's playing? I am just utterly grateful, utterly amazed, and really just hoping I can do it the honor that, that it deserves. Also returning to the Jeopardy stage is Rowan Ward, who fans lovingly remember for their eccentric personality and their odd line of work. I'm a chart caller and horse racing writer and editor. I write and edit words about horses running around in circles very fast and it makes me happy. Rowan, who identifies as non-binary, also grew up as a Jeopardy super fan. Their dad, on the other hand, not so much. When Jeopardy would come on, Johnny Gilbert would be like, this is Jeopardy! And my father would be like, no, it's not. When Rowan first appeared on Jeopardy, they had the misfortune of playing against one of Jeopardy's all-time greats. Whose 17 days cash winnings total $547,600. In my brain, I'm like, no, you're not going to get here and hear that you're up against the super champ and just deflate. And although Rowan certainly did not deflate, they were not able to unseat the returning champion. So, like Nikki, Rowan is eager for the competition to kick off. However, for Rowan, the stakes are even bigger. Because when they first appeared on Jeopardy, they competed under the name they went by before they came out publicly as non-binary. A decision they now regret. It felt like the right decision at the time, but then when it aired, I was very excited that it happened, but I was also kind of sad because I know that this name isn't long for the world, but it's gonna follow me around in this context forever because I was on Jeopardy under it. And to get a second chance to play Jeopardy as 
Rowan Ward means everything to me. So for Rowan, Nikki, and 16 others, this competition will mean something special. Maybe a second shot at a childhood dream or a chance to reintroduce yourself to the world. But for us watching at home, this is a chance to see what happens when a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity comes twice. Michael Levitt, NPR News, Atlanta. First came the glittering satire Parasite, Korea's surprise Best Picture Oscar winner. Then came Squid Game, the international streaming sensation. Now, critic Bob Mondello says the Korean film industry has another potential hit, a new detective drama called Decision to Leave. We're in Busan, where Hai Jun is the youngest detective on the city's police force, but an old hand at sleuthing. He wears custom-made suits with a dozen pockets for the essentials of his trade, eye drops for overnight stakeouts, a chainmail glove so in a knife fight he can grab his opponent's blade. He's ready for anything, it seems, except, well, no sense getting ahead of ourselves. Near the start of the film, his interest is piqued when an experienced climber's body is found at the base of a cliff. Did he fall? Was he pushed? We'd better go up, he tells his partner. So is a chopper coming? Not this time. Our detective wants to retrace the fall in reverse, walking up the side of the cliff with a motorized pulley assist, explaining to his partner, who's strapped to his back, that this is the path the dead man took, and they're the police. Then should we bounce down three times like he did, moans the partner. After that little field trip, they talk to the climber's much younger wife, Xiao Rei, who seems remarkably unfazed by her husband's death. Might she be a black widow type? She's an elder care nurse, beloved by her patients, and not a suspect unless the death turns out to be suspicious. So is it? Writer-director Park Chan-wook amplifies doubts as the investigation proceeds while keeping the detective firmly in C.O. Ray's orbit. He surveils her apartment so many evenings that eventually she invites him in. And together they solve a communication problem. Mandarin, not Korean, is her first language, and he doesn't speak it, so... Google Translate to the rescue. It's worth noting that cell phones and electronics have been wreaking havoc with this sort of film noir generally. Mysteries tend to be less mysterious when you can track a suspect's whereabouts. So it's intriguing how the filmmakers made tech part of the game here. It's the sort of thing you can imagine Hitchcock playing with if cell phones had been around in his day. And I bring up Hitch's name deliberately. Even if there weren't a fall from great heights, this detective meets possible femme fatale story would be likely to remind you of vertigo, lush romance, obscure motives, characters you trust about as far as a director can drop them from a cliff, and a story in which it's at about the halfway point when you think the mystery is being neatly wrapped up that things really get interesting. Decision to leave is all about decisions the characters make to leave a job, a marriage, a great love. Can't imagine any audience member making a decision to leave, though. Not once this story gets going. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Insperity providing HR support for 30-plus years, including access to benefits and HR technology. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, 
designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft. Used by millions globally. Learn more at keepernpr.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzie. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The January 6th committee held what could be its last hearing today. This time it focused on Donald Trump's role in trying to undo the 2020 election results. No president can defy the rule of law and act this way in a constitutional republic, period. It's Thursday, October 13th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, a Florida jury decides to give the Parkland shooter life in prison without parole rather than a death sentence. He killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. To keep pace with inflation, Social Security recipients will get a cost-of-living adjustment. And colon cancer specialists worry that the results of a new European study could be misconstrued and keep patients from getting life-saving colonoscopy screenings. These stories and the forecast are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection wrapped up what's expected to be its final public hearing by voting to subpoena former President Donald Trump. And Piers Windsor-Johnston reports the panel laid out additional evidence today showing Trump was the driving force behind a plot to stay in office, regardless of what the voters decided in 2020. The panel presented evidence that Trump had planned a victory speech long before any votes were counted. Republican committee member Adam Kinzinger said Trump's defiance was premeditated. President Trump knew the truth, but he made the deliberate choice to ignore the courts, to ignore the Justice Department, to ignore his campaign leadership, and to pursue a completely unlawful effort to overturn the election. The committee also shared an email sent to the Secret Service well before the attack about the far-right extremist group Proud Boys. It warned... Their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A Florida jury today sentenced the young man who gunned down 17 people at a Parkland High School in 2018 to life in prison. NPR's Greg Allen reports family members say they're shocked and angry that Nicholas Cruz didn't receive the death penalty. The courtroom was quiet as Judge Elizabeth Scherer read the verdicts for each of the 17 victims. In each case, the jury recommended a sentence of life in prison without parole. Family members who wanted the death penalty shook their heads in disbelief. Later, Fred Guttenberg, whose 14-year-old daughter Jamie was one of those killed by Nicholas Cruz that day, said he was stunned and devastated. I don't know how this jury came to 
the conclusions that they did today. But 17 families did not receive justice. Judge Scherer said she'll hold a hearing next month to formally impose the life sentence. Greg Allen, NPR News, Fort Lauderdale. Inflation continues to push up the cost of necessities, rising once again last month. Consumer prices, excluding volatile food and energy costs, are up 6.6 percent from a year ago, the fastest annual pace in 40 years. Mark Zandi is chief economist of Moody Analytics. He says the numbers paint a stark picture. The increase in inflation was very broad-based, uh, so big increases in the cost of rent, medical care, motor vehicles. So it's not only how fast inflation is, it's the fact that it's up across lots of different products and services. That new signals the Federal Reserve will likely continue raising short-term interest rates. Meanwhile, retirees will soon be seeing the biggest cost of living adjustment in decades. Social Security says recipients will get an 8.7 percent bump in their monthly checks. Wall Street higher by the close, the Dow up 827, Nasdaq up 232. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The police chief in Woburn has placed an officer on leave. It's because of allegations the officer was involved in a deadly rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, five years ago. Here's WBUR's Deborah Becker. Police Chief Robert Rufo says he placed Officer John Donnelly on leave after he recently learned of allegations that Donnelly may have helped plan and attended the so-called Unite the Right rally. The rally included white supremacist groups and members of the Ku Klux Klan. Woburn Mayor Scott Galvin says an internal affairs investigation is pending, and if the allegations are sustained, Donnelly will lose his job. Donnelly has not responded to a request for comment. One woman was killed in dozens of people were hurt at the Charlottesville rally when an avowed white supremacist drove into counter-demonstrators. That man was sentenced to life in prison. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. In the past 20 minutes, Boston police announced this afternoon's report of a kidnapping of a child on the Boston University campus was false. Officers say somebody reported an 8-year-old boy was taken by a woman in a van on Commonwealth Avenue near Marsh Chapel. Police say the van and the child have been located, and the report resulted from a misunderstanding. Two Boston-area research institutions are joining a new effort to combat pediatric cancer. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard are partnering with St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Tennessee. They've agreed to invest $60 million in a joint five-year effort to further investigate childhood cancers and seek new treatments. Stormy weather is moving into the region this evening. WBR's meteorologist Daniel Noyce tells us what to expect. Rain continues to fill in this evening. It's going to rain hard at times overnight into tomorrow morning. Downpours, some rumbles of thunder may wake you up. It's going to be a slow morning commute for sure with rain slowly tapering off through the early afternoon. Expect a widespread one to two inches of rain from many of us. Some locally higher totals not out of the question, mainly outside of 495. Big puddles, poor drainage flooding, nothing too widespread. The wind may cause some damage early tomorrow morning too. Southeast gust to 45 miles per hour may mean some limbs coming down, isolated out. Outages. After the rain ends, the wind's going to die down substantially. Should be about 70 degrees for a high tomorrow. Then sunny skies arrive just in time for the weekend. Could be about 68 degrees Saturday and Sunday. 66 degrees now in Boston at 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CIC Innovation Campus. Committed to creating an office space where talent wants to work. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com enterprise and DuckDuckGo, 
Committed to making privacy online simple, used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. After hours of dramatic testimony across multiple hearings, here is where the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol landed today. A unanimous vote to subpoena former President Donald Trump. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. The resolution is agreed to. The panel held that vote after a hearing that focused on how Trump continued to push a false narrative that the 2020 election was stolen, even though members say he knew he had lost. They also spoke about what he was doing as his supporters attacked the Capitol. Here's committee member and Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin. Until approximately 4 p.m. over the next two hours and 40 minutes, the president stayed in the White House dining room, attached to the Oval Office, and watched this unprecedented assault take place at the Capitol. We have testimony from several members of the president's White House staff establishing that President Trump refused entreaties from his closest advisors and family members to tell his supporters to stand down and leave the Capitol. Congressman Adam Schiff of California also said the Secret Service had advance warning that the day was potentially going to turn violent. The Secret Service had advance information more than 10 days beforehand regarding the Proud Boys planning for January 6th. We know now, of course, that the Proud Boys and others did lead the assault on our Capitol building. Committee Vice Chair and Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney said there are still questions about what happened that day, and the American people are entitled to, to hear answers from former President Trump on what happened. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has been covering the January 6th probe from the very beginning. She's here at the studio now to talk about what else happened at today's big hearing. Hey, Claudia. Hi, Mary Louise. Okay, dig into the subpoena decision today with me. What is driving it? Right. Much of the hearing was focused on evidence the committee had gathered of then-President Trump's intent, the premeditation, if you will, especially building up to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And they had hinted to us that they were going to be doing a broader look today, a step back compared to these previous hearings from this past summer. Vice Chair Liz Cheney presented the resolution to vote on this subpoena for former President Trump. Let's take a listen to that moment. This afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. And while she did note that the Justice Department is going to unearth a lot of the evidence to come with this probe into the January 6th attack, she said the panel, for their part, saw at least 30 witnesses not testify to what they knew. Hmm. They may have come in, but they did not share details when they did appear before the committee. And so that leaves the committee looking at this central figure in the January 6th attack. And Cheney noted that is the former president, and they cannot complete their probe without issuing the subpoena. Well, stay with that central figure and give me a sense of how high expectations 
expectations may be that he would actually cooperate? Not very high. The expectations are pretty low at this point, especially that Trump himself has already responded on his social media app. He said the panel was, quote, a total bust. And he also said that it has served to, quote, divide our country. Okay, walk me through some of the other highlights, some of the other new moments related to Trump's role that we learned about today. Right. We heard new testimony from former Trump officials about his state of mind building up to the attack. For example, we saw former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson. We've seen her before, but today we saw her new testimony talking about running into the former president after a holiday party where she heard him say, quote, this is embarrassing, quote, I don't want people to know we lost. And this goes to the panel's broader argument that Trump knew he had lost the election and he was working to undermine the 2020 presidential election results. And we also heard evidence presented by Republican member Adam Kinzinger, who said that the then president had looked into pulling American troops from Afghanistan and Somalia. And even as this remark as remarkable as this plan that was proposed was the argument Kinzinger and others on the panel were making is that Trump knew that he was leaving office and he was trying to leave a national security mess, if you will, for President Biden. We also saw today some pretty riveting footage of congressional leaders. There was some video of Nancy Pelosi. Walk me through what we saw. Right. Uh, We saw these leaders who were taken to a secure location during the attack. First, they wanted to try and put a plan together on how to get these uh, insurrectionists who went into the Capitol out of the Capitol to secure the Capitol and as also try and go back in a session and complete the business of the day, which was to certify the result of President Biden's win. Um, And we also saw the alarm that members were experiencing as this attack ensued. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, we heard one moment where she is realizing that there were members now trapped inside the House chamber. Did we go back into session? We did go back into session, but now apparently everybody on the floor is putting on tear gas masks to prepare for a breach. I'm trying to get more information. They're putting on their tear gas masks. So right there, we can hear her say, can you believe this? Then we heard Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer talking about calling the National Guard that senators were trapped as well. And so it was a really remarkable moment in terms of what they were experiencing. That is NPR's Claudia Griselis getting us up to speed on all that happened today with the January 6th committee. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you much. Four and a half years after a gunman murdered 17 people at a school in Parkland, Florida, a jury has given him a sentence of life in prison, not the death penalty. That sentence followed a trial in which prosecutors presented the grim details of the attack at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Jurors heard survivors testify about their terror as a former student, Nicholas Cruz, fired an AR-15-style rifle into classrooms and hallways. They viewed surveillance videos showing the murders and visited the crime scene. But in the end, the 12 jurors were swayed by defense testimony that Cruz is, in the words of his lawyer, a brain-damaged, broken, mentally ill person. NPR's Greg Allen has been covering the trial and joins us now from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Hi, Greg. Hi, Sasha. Greg, I assume this came as a surprise to many people in the courtroom. You were there. How did they react? 
People were stunned and shocked by the verdict today, for sure. Uh, one family member called it a gut punch. Many said that the death penalty is the only appropriate sentence. That's what the family member's been saying for some time. Elin Aladef, the father of 14-year-old Alyssa Aladef, one of those killed that day, said he was totally disgusted with the system. That you can allow 17 dead and 17 others shot and wounded and not give the death penalty. What do we have the death penalty for? Greg, you have followed this trial over the last three months. Do you have any insight into why the jury rejected the death penalty? Well, the jury deliberated for less than eight hours before coming back with the sentence. Family members, and I think many others, clearly expected a sentence of death after such a short time. The courtroom was silent as Judge Elizabeth Schurer began reading through the jury's 17 verdict forms. Here she is. We, the jury, unanimously find that the aggravating factors that were proven beyond a reasonable doubt outweigh the mitigating circumstances. No. And that means the jury found the defense arguments convincing. The defense presented testimony that Cruz was mentally impaired because his mother's drug and alcohol abuse while she was pregnant with him. The defense said that Cruz's behavioral and mental health problems were never really properly diagnosed and treated. And jurors found these so-called mitigating factors outweighed the aggravating factors. And those aggravating factors were things like that it was a mass murder, that it was planned and premeditated, and that it was especially heinous, atrocious, or cruel. For prosecutors, this is a defeat. They wanted the death sentence. They spent four years preparing this case. How did they react? Well, the current state attorneys had nothing but thanks for the jury and everyone involved in the case, and he wouldn't take any questions to talk about it further. Family members uh, praised the prosecution team, and who they say they presented a strong case for the death penalty, they feel. But many of the family members were very critical of the jury. Some believe one or more members of the jury weren't completely truthful when they told the court that they supported imposing the death penalty in certain cases. Something has to be, you have to say to get on a jury like this. Linda Beagle said she was angry, but she didn't blame the jury herself. Her son Scott was a teacher at the school who was killed that day. We can't damn the jurors. Come on, I mean, I, if that's how I come across, I apologize. These jurors sat there since July 18th, day in and day out. You know, there may be some people who consider life without parole worse than the death penalty, the death penalty. So do you have any sense of whether people will accept that justice was done with this verdict? Well, the, the public defender in Broward County, Gordon Weeks, today talked about the pain and trauma the community is still going through following the shooting. And he clearly is concerned about that. He asked the public to respect the verdict. Respect the process that was had and understand that those jurors have spoken. And as a community, we can now begin the process of healing. I didn't hear any family members today say this helps them with healing, though. Many are angry. They say they, the system and the community failed them. Debbie Hickson says it'll take some time for her to process the verdict. Her husband, Christopher Hickson, was killed that day. He's the school's athletic director. It will have to be something I resolve within myself, um, with my family, because really right now it feels that his life is more valuable than Christopher's, and that is not true. Some of the family members of the victims have become activists and have vowed to continue that work on school safety and gun control. Uh, some say they're worried this verdict could encourage future school shootings. And as for Cruz, he'll be formally sentenced next month, and he'll spend the rest of his life in prison with no possibility of parole. That's NPR's Greg Allen in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Greg, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up for the first time, the top nominees for Georgia's Senate are both black men. The contest could determine the balance of power in the chamber. That story is just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, offering programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street. And Innuendo, covering Metro Boston windows for over 30 years with shades, blinds, draperies, and more. Innuendo's design team in Natick and Innuendo.com. It was a wild ride for the Dow on Wall Street today. The index closed 2.83% higher. That's 828 points after a 1,300-point intraday turnaround. The Dow finally settled at 30,039. S&P rose more than 2.5% today to close at 36.70. The Nasdaq gained about 2.25% to finish the day at 10,649. Details on Marketplace in just over an hour. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession, with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, now through October 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen on the WBR mobile app while you're out working or heading outdoors to work. In the forecast, kind of stormy weather headed our way that can ruin your umbrella. The strongest storm should be this evening or tonight. Wind gusts overnight as much as 26 miles an hour. Temperatures about 61. Tomorrow, rainy, maybe a thunderstorm, gusty winds for the first part of the day. Things should taper off in the afternoon. Highs about 70 degrees and sunshine due in for the weekend. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Insperity, providing HR support for 30-plus years, including access to benefits and HR technology. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. For the first time, the top nominees for a U.S. Senate seat from Georgia are both black men. Republican Herschel Walker, a former football star, is challenging Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. When they debate each other on Friday, both will carry their experiences as black men born and raised in Georgia. WABE's Sam Greenglass explains how that history informs their campaigns and their opposing views on race. It's easy to find contrast between Georgia's top two candidates for U.S. Senate. Senator Raphael Warnock supports abortion rights. Herschel Walker has called for a total ban. There's no, there's no exception in my mind. Like I said, I believe in life. So and no I do it. No for... exception. I believe in life. Recently, Walker has come under scrutiny for allegations he paid for an ex-girlfriend's abortion, despite his hardline stance as a candidate. Those accounts are now overshadowing pretty much everything else. They'll do whatever it takes, say whatever they have to say, because they want this seat right here. But I don't think they know that they woke up a bear. Walker is a beloved football star, but his campaign has sparked controversy from the start, including for how he talks about race. 23 and me has screwed us all up. So it don't matter about your color. 
a house divided cannot stand. So I want us to come together. Walker says Democrats like his opponent use race to divide. Raphael Warnock is senior pastor at Martin Luther King Jr.'s church, Ebenezer Baptist. He talks about dismantling systemic racism, like in this Senate floor speech about voting rights. We are witnessing right now a massive and unabashed assault on voting rights. This is Jim Crow in new clothes. The now political rivals were born just 115 miles and seven years apart, both the children of poor black families who had lived in Georgia for generations. But as young adults in the 70s and 80s, they developed diverging views on race and racism that shaped their Senate campaigns today. Walker on the football field and Warnock in the church. The institution of the church is for many black communities a lifeline. It's an organizing and mobilizing space. Leah wright Rigur is a political historian at Johns Hopkins University. Certainly sports becomes a site of resistance in terms of African-Americans desegregating teams, African-Americans using sports to grasp some measure of social mobility. When Walker played football and track at Johnson County High School, it had only been integrated for a few years. Wrightsville, Georgia, home of Johnson County High School football star Herschel Walker, the most recruited player in the nation this year. I was just now coming out to be a great athlete. I think my high school is probably almost 55th white black. That's Walker in an interview with rapper Killer Mike on WABE. In Walker's memoir, he writes about being overcome by fear of the Ku Klux Klan and remembers them stalking black kids as they walked home from school, pulling them into the woods for mock lynchings. There is a broad misconception of what life is like in the 1980s in the South. There still remains a very segregated, economically unequal society for African Americans. For Raphael Warnock, that society was Savannah, Georgia. As a teen, Warnock spent hours at a nearby library, listening to recordings from the civil rights movement. He wrote about that time in his memoir. I repeatedly played one of Dr. King's key sermons, A Knock knock at midnight. Midnight. He preached a different kind of gospel from what I typically heard in most churches. There are men who stand up in the pulpit and preach every Sunday, and yet they can look at racial injustice and never open their mouths against it. Meanwhile, in Wrightsville, Herschel Walker would soon be called on to raise his voice. Last night, there were state troopers everywhere. They were ordered into the area by Governor Busby. The there was a clans coming down to Wrightsville, Georgia. They were like, oh, Herschel, you got to do this, got to do that. Walker had just led Johnson County High to the 1980 state football championship. It was national news when Walker accepted a full ride to play for the University of Georgia. Days later, Wrightsville attracted the country's attention again. Protests against racial injustice had broken out, directed at the county's white sheriff. As marchers gathered, they were met with violence. The Klan mobilized. Locals and out-of-town civil rights leaders pleaded for Wrightsville's most famous resident to speak out. Well, he had white people calling him the N-word, and he had black people calling him Uncle Tom. Walker's track coach, Tom Jordan, was one of his early mentors. And he was just searching for for his spot. Raphael Warnock, however, was finding his spot at Morehouse College, the historically black school in Atlanta attended by Dr. King four decades earlier. 
Warnock signed up to serve as an assistant at the King Memorial Chapel on campus. The chapel's dean, Lawrence Carter, became Warnock's mentor. Supremely confident, mature beyond his years, he frequently would come into the chapel library and sit down with no one else there and he would study. It was at the chapel where Warnock's ideas about racial justice and faith coalesced. And when our chapel is packed and our 6,000 pipe organ is sounding in their ears, surrounded by people who are doing bold things, that pours iron into your spine. And when you see injustice, you want to do something about it. Herschel Walker faced a decision about whether to do something about the racial injustices in Wrightsville. Here's track coach Tom Jordan. Called team meet and I said, look guys, so you can't get in shape for a track meet. Marching, you gotta run. Practice is at three o'clock, you know, I don't tolerate missing. More than a dozen of Walker's teammates quit the track team. Walker did not. And my parents taught me to do what's right. There's no calling right or wrong. Walker didn't say anything publicly about the protests, reflecting on his decision years later, again in an interview with Killer Mike. What has happened if I went the other side? If I went that side, where will I be at today? Because right now I got an opportunity. I can get a seat at the table. Now that seat at the table may be in the U.S. Senate. His political viewpoints and his rejection of race as a consideration does not represent African-American audiences. It is, however, the perspective of the majority of working class white voters in the state of Georgia. Historian Leah wright Rigger says these views aren't an anomaly, so they shouldn't be ignored, especially when they're coming from a candidate on the cusp of immense influence. These two candidates have laid out conflicting descriptions of the country's current divisions. Here's Herschel Walker. We're not a racist country. The United States of America is the greatest country in the world today, and it's time that we get leaders in Washington that know that. This is Raphael Warnock. We elected Georgia's first African-American Jewish senator, and hours later, the Capitol was assaulted. We see in just a few precious hours the tension very much alive in the soul of America. And the question before all of us at every moment is, what will we do to push us in the right direction? Warnock and Walker's lives took them in two different directions. Georgia voters will soon choose which candidate they want to follow. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. The Harvard Art Museums with Dare to Know, a new exhibition exploring the compelling role of prints during the Enlightenment. Free on Sundays, HarvardArtMuseums.org. And Lab Shears Newton, with state-of-the-art BL2 lab space that frees up biotechs to focus on innovative treatments for difficult diseases. Labshares.com. The war that happened in Afghanistan, it was not because of women. Women doesn't even, like, fight. But they're, like, stuck between the war, you know? And it doesn't matter who did wrong, but everything will come on women. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi, 
That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Almost five years after the murders of 17 people at a Florida high school, a jury today recommended life in prison without parole for Parkland shooter Nicholas Cruz. A sentence of death would have required a unanimous decision among the 12 jurors. In this case, at least one juror held out. Several family members shook their heads in disbelief as the verdict became clear. Tony Montalto lost his 14-year-old daughter during the rampage at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I haven't heard one of our families complain about the case they put on. They were factual. They were realistic. Their rebuttal was excellent. I just think people forget what facts are these days. The defense had argued that there were mitigating factors. Mental health problems drove Cruz's actions that day. Cruz had already pleaded guilty to the Valentine's Day shooting and will spend the rest of his life in prison. Authorities in New York are asking a court to intervene to block former President Donald Trump from hiding business assets. NPR's Ilya Maritz reports New York's attorney general is concerned Trump may be trying to shield his assets should he lose a lawsuit against him. In September, New York Attorney General Letitia James sued Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, and Trump's three eldest adult children, accusing them of a years-long fraud that involved lying about the value of their real estate holdings. That same day, a new Trump business entity was formed. A.G. James is concerned Trump may use that new business to shield some of his holdings, should the state prevail in its lawsuit and win big-dollar penalties. James is asking the judge to block Trump from moving assets without the court's approval and to appoint an independent monitor. Trump's attorney calls the motion a stunt and says her client has no intention of doing anything improper. Ilya Meritz, NPR News, New York. Roaring back from steep losses earlier in the day, stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The nearly 50 migrants who were flown to Martha's Vineyard last month are a step closer to being granted temporary immigration status to stay in the U.S. A sheriff in Texas has signed documents that certify the migrants were potential victims of crime. That could help them qualify for a so-called U-Visa. The Bear County Sheriff says his actions will ensure the migrants will be available as witnesses in his criminal investigation into possible unlawful restraint. The flights from Texas to the vineyard were orchestrated by Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis. A conservative group is criticizing a proposal to limit the size of tax refunds Massachusetts is sending out this fall. The refunds are because the state has a revenue surplus. Progressive lawmakers have proposed that refunds be capped at $6,500. That would reduce payments to those who earn more than $1 million a year and distribute the remaining money to lower-income workers. Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance says the idea violates the intent of the refunds fund law that voters approved in 1986. Alliance spokesman Paul Craney says the law orders refunds to taxpayers proportionate to how much they paid in taxes. Everyone that paid into it gets the appropriate amount of refund. And I think that's very important because these politicians today are trying to make it into something else. Critics of the law argue the formula gives the state's wealthiest taxpayers an advantage over lower-income earners. The Transportation Security Administration has seized more weapons at Logan Airport this year than in any previous year. Yesterday, it seized its 24th gun this year. Security screeners spotted the loaded firearm in a passenger's backpack at a checkpoint. Massachusetts State Police say the man did not have a permit to carry. They did not release his name. He has been summoned to court. It's 534. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit working to build a just, sustainable future for people and the planet. Learn more at ceres.org slash WBUR. The forecast from now until about midday tomorrow, wet and windy, too. Showers and thunderstorms should be heaviest before 2 a.m. Then they should whip up again from in time for tomorrow's morning commute. Maybe an inch or two of rain tomorrow that could cause localized flooding. Things should start to dry out tomorrow afternoon. Tomorrow's high is about 70. Should stay there over the weekend with mainly sunny skies due in for Saturday and Sunday. 66 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Food, shelter, electricity, everyday needs that keep getting more expensive. The annual inflation rate in September was 8.2 percent. That's according to a government report out today. And that's almost as high as the previous month. Inflation is chipping away at most people's buying power. But those who receive Social Security benefits will soon get some relief. NPR's Scott Horsley has the details. Hi, Scott. Good to be with you. Start us off with that Social Security announcement today. What's the good news there? Every January, people who get Social Security receive an automatic cost of living increase. And ordinarily, when prices are stable, it's not a big deal. But, of course, this year, inflation's been really high. So come January, retirees and others who get Social Security will receive the largest cost of living increase in decades. Benefits are going up 8.7% next year. For the average retiree, that means an extra $141 a month. That was welcome news to Jeannie Reed. She's a retired nurse who lives near Tucson, Arizona. I was real pleased. (laughs) That won't upset the extreme increases, but it sure will help. That uh, benefit increase offers an important safeguard for more than 65 million people who get Social Security. Of course, most people don't have that kind of guarantee that their income will keep up with rising prices. For the average worker, for example, wages rose just 5% over the last 12 months, while prices, as you said, jumped more than 8%. And what is driving those price hikes? Well, they're really widespread, especially on the services side. Both rent and health care costs were up significantly last month. Of course, grocery prices are still climbing. And while gasoline prices came down a little bit in September, other energy costs are on the rise. Electricity prices are up more than 15 percent in the last year. That's a challenge for Reed, who is still running her air conditioner in Arizona, even in mid-October. It was 90 yesterday. We're in, quote, a cool snap. Earlier in the summer, there were days when it was 108. So you turn on your air conditioner sometime in May, and you don't turn it off. I'll probably turn it off in the next couple of weeks. People who live in colder parts of the country are likely to see a big jump in heating bills this winter. Uh, the Energy Department this week projected that heating costs will be up 10 to 28 percent from last winter, mostly because of rising prices for natural gas and heating oil, but also because forecasters think it's going to be a little bit colder.
And we just see inflation keep going up, not leveling off. No, prices actually rose more between August and September than the two previous months. One jump that really stands out in September is the price of school lunches, which soared 44.9% in just that one month. Rising food costs explain some of that, but mainly it's because the federal government's no longer subsidizing free school lunches for all students, regardless of income, the way it did for the last two years. And that's kind of a striking counterpoint to what's happening with Social Security. What do today's numbers tell us about the Fed's effort to try to curb inflation by raising interest rates? Well, it's going to be a long slog, and the Fed is going to probably keep boosting rates uh, at a hefty pace at its next meeting in November. Uh, The stock market uh, didn't like that at first, but then rebounded, and the Dow ended up more than 800 points today. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you. You're welcome. The findings of a big European study published this week in the New England Journal of Medicine seemed to cast doubt on just how beneficial a colonoscopy can be in preventing colorectal cancer, a leading cause of cancer deaths in the U.S. The results have generated a lot of controversy, and as NPR's Allison Aubrey reports, doctors are worried the findings have been misunderstood. Beginning back in 2009, thousands of healthy people in Norway, Sweden, the Netherlands, and Poland, between the ages of 55 and 64, were invited to get a colonoscopy. None of them had ever had one, because as Dr. Michael Brethauer of the University of Oslo explains, colonoscopies are really not the norm there. The procedure enables doctors to look inside a patient's entire colon and to remove any polyps or abnormal tissue that could turn into cancer. Over here in Europe, uh, you know, a few countries offer colonoscopy screening. Most do not. So the big question we want to answer is, what is the benefit of colonoscopy screening to prevent colorectal cancer? More than 10 years later, Brett Hauer has published an answer to that question. And at first blush, it seems the benefits were not so impressive. His study found overall the reduction in colon cancer deaths was so small it wasn't even statistically significant. Now, this is surprising, given studies done in the U.S. have linked colonoscopies to a nearly 70 percent reduction in deaths. Some people don't like the study because they believe it's a negative study. When the study first attracted attention earlier this week, headlines did focus on the negative. One was, screening procedure fails to prevent colon cancer deaths in large study. But it turns out this interpretation is misleading. So remember how I said thousands of people were invited invited to get a colonoscopy? Well, it turns out most of them never showed up. 42% showed up. The rest did not show up. Entirely correct. So is it really much of a surprise that they didn't see much benefit, given so many people in the study never got the procedure? That's akin to saying a vaccine doesn't work because people didn't get the shot. Here's Brett Peterson, a gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic. A huge proportion of patients didn't follow through with their exam. So colonoscopy doesn't work well unless it's actually done. And the results were tremendously skewed. Now, this isn't the whole story. The researchers in Norway did do another analysis, including only the people who actually had the colonoscopy. Turns out they were less likely to get colon cancer and less likely to die. In fact, deaths decreased about 50%. Dr. Peterson says this is what he would expect. When one looks at those patients who actually did go forward with the exam, 
there was a statistically important reduction in cancer, much like the studies performed to date in North America. Dr. Peterson is also president of the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, which put out a statement affirming its position that colonoscopy is the gold standard in detecting and preventing colorectal cancer. Research scientists, including Douglas Corley, a gastroenterologist at Kaiser Permanente, have been evaluating the procedure for years. Colonoscopy as a single test done once is the gold standard for detecting colon polyps and colon cancer. He points to national recommendations that adults be screened for colon cancer beginning at age 45 and says colonoscopy isn't the only option. Many people opt for stool tests they can do at home, which can detect blood or DNA changes. If you are at higher risk for colon cancer, such as you've had close family members who've had colon cancer, especially if they're at a young age, then it's recommended that you have a colonoscopy. Those who are not at high risk often opt for the stool-based tests. He says each screening approach has its pluses and minuses, and no matter which one you choose, the most important thing is that you actually do the screening. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Black gun ownership in America goes back centuries. Firearms helped aid Nat Turner's rebellion against white enslavers. Harriet Tubman famously carried her pistol along the Underground Railroad. Later, civil rights leaders felt it was necessary to arm themselves against potential racial violence, from journalist Ida B. Wells insisting that every black home be equipped with a Winchester rifle, to Martin Luther King Jr., who tried to obtain a concealed carry license. And in recent years, more black Americans are buying guns. Chicago-based photographer Christian Lee wanted to present a specific picture of black gun ownership. He called his project Armed Doesn't Mean Dangerous. And he set out to photograph black gun owners in his hometown. You can see those pictures on NPR.org. When I spoke to Christian Lee earlier, he told me that he found some of the people to photograph for this project at gun ranges. Yeah, I always tell people um, one of the hardest things to do is to walk into a walk into a white gun range and ask, hey, where's your black gun owners? <laughs> and interesting enough, you know, those people were very helpful to me, you know, and I found I ended up finding one owner that introduced me to another owner. And then I just found myself immersed into in the community. I really wanted to make sure that I was hearing directly from the mouths of people instead of what I was seeing on TV. I am curious, Christian, are you yourself a gun owner? Did you grow up learning how to shoot guns? So, interesting story. I grew up in a household where my father was a Vietnam era veteran and he was a Chicago area police officer. Um, However, we lived in one of the the most crime-ridden neighborhoods in Chicago. So it wasn't until I joined the military and moved to Texas that I actually saw firearms be used in a positive way. The army is what put the gun in my hand for the first time, right? But it was living in Texas, not necessarily the army, that I actually saw hunters, 
that I actually saw, you know, people that just wanted to protect their home, um, which is directly um, opposite to what I saw in TV and news in Chicago, where I saw it's mostly depicted as criminals. And I set off to conduct my own research to determine why. Can you describe this photography project? Because people who are listening may not have a chance to look at these photos, right, as they're listening to us. Maybe describe like one photo that you feel is particularly emblematic. There's an image. Um, So most of the images I take, I made portraits using a four by five camera. And it was one image that I took. It was in a forest with a gun owner and his son. And he's, you know, holding his son near him. The father and the son is embracing. You can see that this firearm is almost being like passed down in a responsible manner. Those were the images that I was not seeing growing up in my hometown. I wanted to make sure I expanded the archive of African-American gun ownership in our country. That is Chicago-based photographer Christian Lee talking about his new project called Armed Doesn't Mean Dangerous. You can see the people he's been telling us about at NPR.org. Thank you so much, Christian. Thank you for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast. Sporadic showers over the next couple of hours. Then the rain moves in in a big way overnight tonight. Could be thunderstorms, strong winds, relatively mild lows, only about 61 degrees overnight. And for tomorrow, we should wake up to stormy weather. Strong winds once again. Could be a nasty morning commute tomorrow. Most of the rain should finally move out by the afternoon. Tomorrow's highs could reach 70 again. Then a change in the weather for the weekend should be sunny and dry, right about 70. 66 degrees now in Boston at 548. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with Titus Gaffar's Jerome Project, Portraits on Race, Representation, and Mass Incarceration. GardnerMuseum.org. Dozens of first responders were honored today for saving a man's life in Milford after a car crash. In July, the man was trapped for about 24 hours beneath his Jeep in some woods off Interstate 495. Dispatchers, police officers, and firefighters from Milford and Hopkinton worked together to find the 60-year-old after he was reported missing. Rescuers used pings off the man's cell phone to track him to an area of quarries. Then crews used a drone and all-terrain vehicles to find him. Today, the Worcester County DA presented the first responders with an award for excellence and merit. This is 90.9 WBUR, 66 degrees at 549. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson's Drum Folk. They took away the drums, but they could not stop the beat. October 5th through 16th at the Cutler Majestic Theater, artsemerson.org. The power grid of the future will probably rely heavily on the sun and the wind, and communities will need to hold the electricity that's generated before it's needed. We need a facility that will store energy so we don't have to turn off our appliances. An old approach is getting some new attention. The idea that you can create a kind of battery from water and gravity. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. 
There aren't many Latina actresses in leading movie roles, fewer than 2%. That's according to USC's Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. Those who do make it also multitask as directors, producers, and activists. In the final story of her series, Latinos in Hollywood, NPR's Mandalit Del Barco reports on how these powerhouses are shaking things up in the film industry and beyond. Fight the power! Rosie Perez blasted onto the big screen in 1989, dancing like a prize fighter in the opening credits of Do the Right Thing. She remembers how she was discovered. As a college biochem major who danced on TV Soul Train, she met filmmaker Spike Lee at a nightclub. He was like, I want you to try out for a film. And I said, I'm not an actress. And he goes, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> Lee cast the Brooklyn-born Puerto Ricanya in Do the Right Thing. She went on to star in the 1992 film White Man Can't Jump and the 1993 drama Fearless, for which she earned an Oscar nomination. Today, she's in no less than four TV shows, but for many years, Betta says she turned down offensive roles. She fired agents who told her to get a nose job and color her hair blonde. Raising my hand saying, hello, this town is racist. Why isn't anyone saying anything? Bettis didn't just call out Hollywood. Here she is on The View, the talk show for which she was the first Latina co-host. There is a secret in the Latin communities. They never want to be in the same group as black people. And it's sad. It's very, very sad. As an activist, Bettis protested U.S. weapons training in Puerto Rico, and she was on President Obama's advisory council on AIDS and HIV. Betis co-hosts the Latino affinity group of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, along with marketing and publicity ace Yvette Rodriguez. We're trying to move the needle as to inclusion in front and behind the scenes of Hollywood. Like when Hollywood says that they can't find Latinos, it's just absolutely not true. They are there. The stories are there. They need that access, but we need to help them with what happens when you get there. How are you presenting yourself? What is that elevator pitch? Just last week, Rodriguez's organization La Collab signed a deal with Amazon to build a networking platform to match Latinos with jobs, mentors, and funding. Meanwhile, even big-name Latina actresses have to navigate the industry, like on stage at the 2016 Golden Globe ceremony. Yes, hi, I'm Eva Longoria, not Ava Mendes. And hi, I'm America Ferreira, not Gina Rodriguez. Yes. And neither, neither one of us are Rosario Dawson. Nope. Well said, Selma. Thank you, Charo. All joking aside, Eva Longoria and America Ferreira have been crusading for more Latino representation in Hollywood. I don't think there's studios and networks evil plotting in these offices going, let's not hire women and let's not hire Latinos. I think they just unconsciously hire who looks like them, the stories that feel most familiar to them. And so it's about changing those rooms. We are becoming the creators. Tex-Mexican-American Eva Longoria Bastón got her big break in 2001 on the TV soap opera The Young and the Restless. She became known for her role on the show Desperate Housewives. Longoria produced Devious Maids. She directed for Jane the Virgin, was producer and director of Telenovela, and an executive producer of The Gordita Chronicles. I've always been a producer-director turned actor <laughs> because I'm bossy and, um, and I'm really good at it. Uh, <laughs> but no, I always saw myself directing because I was like, oh my God, nobody's telling these stories. I'm going to have to jump behind the camera and do it myself.
Longoria recently wrapped production of Flamin' Hot, her first feature film as director. She's built her portfolio for years. So I could get to a point where I don't need permission to do things. I'm just going to do what I want, hire who I want, and tell the stories that I want. And that, for me, is, you know, stories from the Latinx community. We have heroes. We have fairy tales. We have success stories. And I think our community deserves to see them. America Ferreira starred on the TV show Ugly Betty and became the first Latina to win an Emmy as a leading actress in comedy. She was born in Los Angeles to Honduran parents and made her acting debut in the 2002 film Real Women Have Curves. Turn the lights on. I want you to see me. Que bonita. Ferreira recently made her directorial debut with the Netflix film I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. Her credits include the film The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and most recently the TV comedy Superstore, which she co-produced. Ferreira sees a disturbing trend with many Latino-led shows and films. When budgets shrink, when companies are having a difficult time, our projects are the first to go. Ferreira and Longoria both say diversity and inclusion makes business sense. So does their friend Christy Habegger, who founded the magazine Latina in 1996. She was a Hollywood producer and agent before she became an executive at Warner Media. Habegger says she, Longoria, Ferreira, and others are trying to convince Hollywood they can benefit from nearly 63 million Latinos in the U.S. I want you to want to be, you know, the platform that tells our stories because you want to win 20% of the American audience, right? You want to win the trillions of dollars in spending power we have. You want to win our overperformance at the box office. The activism by these Latinas has gone beyond Hollywood. Ferreira once gave a TED Talk about empowerment. Longoria opened the 2020 Democratic National Convention, and for years, both of them have rallied the Latina vote. I'm out here with Rosario Dawson, Gina Rodriguez, Eva Lagoria, Zoe Saldana, because there's nothing more important going on for our communities. So we have to show up with the whole familia because when we show up together, we're stronger, que no? They've also made public service announcements like these from Rosario Dawson and Longoria. Election day is here. Now's the time for all of us to get out and vote. As mamas, we can use our votes like we use our voices to get loud and vote like a madre this November. The work that they have been doing to make democracy work is absolutely, absolutely, absolutely critical. Dolores Huerta, now age 92, has been a labor leader and civil rights activist for decades. A lot of Latinos feel that their voice is not important, that their vote isn't important. And when they see people like Eva, America, Rosie Perez, uh, Rosario Dawson, it really inspires them, especially the young people. Ferreira says one of the largest barriers for Latinas politically has been a lack of confidence. It's not surprising in a cultural landscape where you don't see yourself reflected. That's why she, Longoria, and Habegger helped start a movement called Poderistas. That's Spanish for powerful women. Last week, Poderistas were at the White House meeting with the First Lady and all the Latina staffers. The Poderistas have social media platforms devoted to empowerment. The goal is to not just say your vote matters or your face on a television screen matters. It's to say your life matters. This Hollywood sisterhood has been traveling around the country, encouraging Latinas to see themselves as stars. Mandalita Barco, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From Klaviyo, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place, with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue. At K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash NPR. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the University of New England in Maine, with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet. UNE.edu. Clark, where chef demonstrations of Wolf Appliances help you compare features and taste the results of ovens, cooktops, ranges, and more. ClarkLiving.com demo. And Welch and Forbes, over 180 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The House panel investigating the January 6th siege at the Capitol has voted to subpoena former President Donald Trump to question him about what he knew before the assault and how he reacted as it was happening. The chair of the committee says Mr. Trump is required to answer for his actions. It's Thursday, October 13th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the UN General Assembly roundly rejects Russia's move to illegally annex parts of Ukraine. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says even with little power to enforce the resolution, the move serves a purpose. It sends a message to Putin and to the Russians that they will not get away with this and that the world will condemn their actions. And tonight on Marketplace, airfares are up 43 percent for the year ending in September. We'll take a look at what's behind the rise and whether ticket prices could fall anytime soon. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The January 6th committee voted unanimously today to subpoena former President Donald Trump for testimony and documents related to the deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol a year ago. Committee Vice Chair Liz Cheney. We must seek the testimony under oath of January 6th central player. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson says the move is an extraordinary one, but... He is the one person at the center of the story of what happened on January 6th. So we want to hear from him. At today's hearing, the committee showed new evidence and heard new testimony from members of the Trump administration and also displayed new evidence that showed the Secret Service received a tip in advance warning of potential violence that day. President Trump responded by calling the committee a bust and asking why they waited till their last meeting to subpoena him. It's not clear if Trump will comply once the subpoena is issued, which could come in a couple of days.
The U.S. Supreme Court today tossed out Trump's request to intervene in a legal fight over the handling of classified documents seized in an FBI raid on his Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. NPR's Nina Totenberg has more. The high court's one-sentence order came less than two weeks after Trump asked the justices to intervene. There was no noted dissent. Trump was essentially asking the justices to undo two actions taken by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals based in Atlanta. That court has twice blocked legal actions taken at Trump's behest by Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump-appointed judge who named a special master to examine the seized documents and blocked the Justice Department from using the classified material in its ongoing criminal inquiry. Now the Justice Department can go ahead. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, it was a dramatic reversal and then some. The Dow plunged 500 points on new inflation data, then surged higher, closing more than 800 points up for the day. NPR's David Gura has more. Wall Street's initial reaction to the latest government report on consumer prices was negative. Stocks tumbled out of the gate after the consumer price index for September showed prices rose by 8.2 percent from a year earlier. And month-to-month, so-called core CPI, which doesn't include food or fuel, was up by 0.6 percent. Disappointing news for the Federal Reserve, which is trying to get high inflation under control. But markets reversed course quickly, and all three major indexes ended the day more than 2 percent higher, ahead of a busy day for earnings. On Friday, most of the major banks are scheduled to report how they did in the last quarter. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And by the close, the Dow was up 827 points. The Nasdaq was up 232, S&P 500 up 92. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Woburn police officer is being investigated for allegedly helping to plan and taking part in the 2017 white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Woburn's mayor and police chief announced today that Officer John Donnelly was placed on leave after they learned of the allegations. Mayor Scott Galvin says the city will work to fire Donnelly if the investigation finds the officer was involved in the Unite the Right rally that included white nationalist and neo-Nazi groups. Donnelly has not responded to WBUR's request for comment. President Biden's newly announced humanitarian parole program would allow up to 24,000 Venezuelan migrants a legal path into the U.S. It could have implications for the migrants flown to Martha's Vineyard last month. That's according to Boston-based Lawyers for Civil Rights, which represents the migrants. WBUR's Cristela Guerra has more. Executive Director Ivan Espinosa Madrigal calls Biden's new policy highly concerning. He traveled to the U.S.-Mexico border with his organization this week to look into the circumstances surrounding how 49 migrants from Texas ended up on Martha's Vineyard. First, it is not designed to welcome and protect. It's really designed to limit, extraordinarily limit, the number of migrants who can be processed in a safe and secure way. The new program requires those applying to enter the U.S. by air and have a financial sponsor. The Biden announcement comes as the 49 migrants just received U-Visa certifications, which will allow them to request humanitarian immigration protections. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. Schools across Massachusetts report student mental health problems have intensified in large part because of the pandemic. Advocates for children say there aren't enough school counselors to meet the growing need. WBUR's Vanessa Ochevillo has more. Counselors don't just write recommendation letters or help students choose classes. They now help students process grief or find housing as they reel from death and financial loss from the pandemic. 
That means larger caseloads, says Bob Bardwell, the executive director of the Massachusetts School Counselors Association. Most counselors leave at the end of the school day saying, I just I didn't get through everything I needed to get through. And that can be pretty frustrating to know your job is never over. The state would need to hire over a thousand more counselors to meet the recommended ratio of one counselor to every 250 students. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochevillio. Look out for heavy rain and strong winds over the next several hours. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce has details. This evening, the rain continues to fill in, falling heavily at times. A bedded thunder during the overnight could wake you up. It's going to be a slow go for the commute in the morning with steady rain ending around 2 p.m. in Boston, give or take. A lingering shower is possible into the early evening. Rain totals will be between 1 to 2 inches for most of us with some localized flooding possible. A brief period of southeast wind gust of 45 miles per hour during the morning tomorrow may result in some pockets of damage and outages, especially from Cape Ann to the South Shore and Cape Cod. So the Secure those Halloween decorations, bring your trash barrels in too. Tomorrow's high should be about 70 degrees. The weekend's looking a lot more promising if you like sunshine. Sunny skies Saturday and Sunday, highs from 68 to about 70. 64 degrees now at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We begin with two setbacks on the legal front for former President Donald Trump. In one case, the Supreme Court turned away Trump's appeal to intervene in his legal battle to allow a special master to review classified documents the FBI seized from his Mar-a-Lago home. Separately, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol has voted unanimously to subpoena the former president in its investigation into that attack. Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero noes. We're going to stay on this development. Committee members spent what may be their final hearing laying out what witnesses say Trump knew about plans to violently disrupt the certification of Joe Biden's presidential election win and what he did when that violence erupted. And Pierre's Deirdre Walsh is at the Capitol. And Deirdre, what do we know about the committee's intentions to seek testimony from Trump? Well, as we heard, they voted unanimously to subpoena the former president for documents and testimony under oath. This was a little unexpected going into today's hearing. We learned that they were planning to do this sort of midway through the hearing. This is kind of an unprecedented step, at least in modern times. The panel has been debating about whether or not to issue a subpoena to former President Trump. The chairman, uh, Benny Thompson, and ranking member Liz Cheney met with House Speaker Pelosi late last month, and I'm told they did give the speaker a heads up that they were going to take this step today. But we should say it's unlikely that Trump is going to cooperate. He is likely going to go to court and could fight the subpoena. There are serious separation of powers issues here about uh, you know, uh, who was a sitting president at the time, about the events of January 6th that they want to talk to him. We should also say that the committee is wrapping up its work. The panel expires at the end of this year, so even though they probably don't expect Trump to cooperate, they wanted to make the case that he should have to appear. Deidre, the panel described what the Secret Service and other agencies heard in advance. What did they hear about what the agents knew and what they told Trump? 
I mean, this was some new information that we got today. The, the panel in recent weeks has gotten hundreds of thousands of emails and documents from the Secret Service after they had to subpoena the agency in July. The committee showed new emails today and an intel report, parts of that, that the Secret Service had information before January 6th that people were planning to come to Washington and to cause violence. We saw emails in late December that they were talking about reports about violent rhetoric on Parler, which is a social uh, media platform, about threats to protectees, people that the Secret Service protect, like Vice President Pence. So they were aware of this potential. There were also messages from the Secret Service about their concerns about security. And one exchange on the day that President Trump lost an effort in the Supreme Court, warning those around the president that he was in a bad mood. How did the committee connect the dots on what Trump did while the siege was underway? They showcased testimony from people at the White House telling the committee that the president was in his office or in a conference room near his office watching the attack on television. They remarked to each other. They were asked by the members in tape depositions about what he was doing during those hours. Here's Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin. Until approximately 4 p.m., over the next two hours and 40 minutes, the president stayed in the White House dining room, attached to the Oval Office, and watched this unprecedented assault take place at the Capitol. And what were members of Congress doing as this mob approached? I mean, this, I think, was the most dramatic uh, stuff that we saw today at today's hearing. We saw behind-the-scenes video, never-before-seen video, of the top leaders on Capitol Hill in the secure location, people like Speaker Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Here's some of what they showed us of Pelosi talking to Vice President Pence, strategizing about how they were going to reopen the House chamber and talking about how the rioters had made a mess. We've gotten a very bad report about the condition of, of the um, House floor, the defecation and all that kind of thing as well. I don't think that that's hard to clean up. Definitely a lot of new dramatic material at what is expected to be the final hearing of the January 6th committee. That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh reporting from the Capitol. Deirdre, thank you. Thank you. The United Nations has a message for Russia. We condemn the attempted annexation of four regions of Ukraine. Also, you will not be allowed to intimidate the world. Yesterday, the UN voted overwhelmingly to demand Russia's withdrawal from Ukraine and called on all countries not to recognize Russia's illegal annexations of four regions in Ukraine. But does the UN have any way to enforce the tough talk? Linda Thomas-Greenfield is the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you very much, and I'm delighted to be here. This vote is designed to send a strong signal. I saw how you put it. You said it means Ukraine's borders stay the same in the eyes of the world stage. But, and it's a significant, but this is not legally binding. So what do you hope that it will actually accomplish? Well, I think it accomplishes two things. First, it sends a message to the Ukrainian people that the world has not forgotten them and that we will not stand by and allow Russia to get away with what is truly an illegal act against everything that we all believe in. But the second part is even more important. It sends a message to Putin and to the Russians that they are isolated, 
that they will not get away with this and that the world will condemn their actions. We got a monumental 143 member states to stand up for territorial integrity, and their isolation here is very clear. Oh. I heard you say it's about sending a message to the Ukrainians, to Russia, but the UN has sent a lot of messages. This is not the first UN resolution on Russia this year. Back on March 2nd, y'all voted to demand that Russia immediately end military operations in Ukraine, pull out. That obviously didn't happen, so let me push you on this. What gives you confidence? Mm -hmm. Do you have any confidence this latest resolution might change Russia's behavior? You know, I do have confidence, and you have to always approach these kinds of situations from a position of strength. Putin said he was going to carry out this action in two weeks and it would be over, and we're seven months into it, and the Ukrainians are fighting for their lives, they're fighting for their country, but the Ukrainians have the backing of the world, and Russia is doing this alone. Yeah. President Biden warned the other day about the threat of a nuclear Armageddon. He said that was his words. He says this is the highest risk it has been in 60 years. In a CNN interview this week, pressed on whether he believes that Putin will actually use nuclear weapons, he said, I don't think he will. Has something changed between those two comments to temper concern in any way? Uh, I don't think anything has changed. Uh, we've heard all of Putin's rhetoric since the beginning, and we do not think these are the kinds of words of a country that is confident in their position. We take Putin's threats, however, very seriously, and we're not going to allow him to intimidate us by his rhetoric. He knows what would happen if he uses this kind of weapon, and we've communicated that directly, as well as privately with the Russians about what the consequences might be. I wonder, though, you know, with him even hinting at the prospect of any possibility of the threat of nuclear escalation, does that change the way you think about trying to strike a balance between pressuring Russia, isolating Russia, versus provoking Russia? I think the president has been very clear that we're not going to do anything from our side to escalate this war. And the provocations are all coming from the Russian side. They invaded Ukraine. They are attacking Ukrainian civilians and Ukrainian civilian infrastructure. They're attacking a, a nuclear plant. So they're escalating and they are the aggressor. But our intention is to continue to support the Ukrainian people's right to defend themselves. Ambassador, you gave us, gave NPR an interview last month in which you talked about evidence that Russia is detaining Ukrainians, forcibly relocating them to Russia, where it is holding them, you said, in so-called filtration camps. Russia disputes this. Can you give any update on what's being done to investigate? I mean, we're still seeing evidence of Russia using these filtration camps and taking Ukrainians into Russia. Uh, we've seen numbers as high as thousands a day of people who are being forcibly removed from Ukraine and taken into far distant places in Russia. And it absolutely has to be condemned. We're doing everything possible to collect evidence of what they're doing so that they can be held accountable, but also that these people 
can be reunited with their families and particularly children who have been filtrated and forcibly adopted. And to be clear about the scale, it sounds like you're not saying this slowed down in any way. This is thousands of people every day. Yeah, we've not seen any evidence that it slowed down. Last thing, this week saw Russian missile strikes against a dozen or so Ukrainian cities, including ones that had not been hit in months, including in the heart of the capital, Kyiv. You're a diplomat, so perhaps I know the answer to this, but it sounds like you do still believe there is a diplomatic resolution, there is a diplomatic way this war ends? We have never given up on diplomacy to find a solution to this war. The Russians chose to push aside diplomacy and uh, chose to attack Ukraine. But we've also been clear that we are not going to engage with Putin on diplomacy on the Ukrainian war without the Ukrainians. And so Ukraine has to be part of any discussions about a diplomatic way forward with the Russians. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, on the line there from New York. She is the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador, thank you. Thank you so much, and it's great to be here with you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, the story behind the majority of unforgiven PPP loans coming up on WBUR. On Wall Street, a pretty wild ride for the Dow today. The index closed 2.83 percent higher. That is 828 points after about uh, after a 1,300-point intraday turnaround. The Dow finally settled today at 30,039. S&P rose more than 2.5 percent to close at 36.70. The Nasdaq gained about 2.25 percent to finish the day at 10,000. It's 619. WBUR supporters include the Boston Globe, presenting Boston's all-documentary film festival in theaters and online October 12th through 16th. The 8th Annual Globe Docs Film Festival features screenings and conversation with Boston Globe journalists and filmmakers. Tickets available at globe.com slash filmfest. Celebrity chef and restaurant owner Tiffany Faison has plans to open a new restaurant in Boston's Fenway neighborhood. Tenderoni's will open next month in the former home of her Tiger Mama restaurant on Boylston Street. Faison made the announcement today on WBR's Radio Boston and said the restaurant will feature a fun and energetic atmosphere. I thought, let's let's do this in some way and let's bring that level of joy and fun and exuberance and like unabashed, just bling. And it's going to be essentially like it's going to look like uh, like a tricked out roller rink. The restaurant is an Italian-American concept featuring two and a half foot long pizzas. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Hillside School, offering a structured environment with a five to one student to teacher ratio for boys grades four through nine. Hillside graduates confident young leaders. On-campus and virtual open house will be held October 19th from 1 to 3 p.m. Hillsideschool.net. Some of the heavy rain and gusty winds are holding off until this evening and overnight tonight. Rain should finally ease up by tomorrow afternoon. Could have a couple of inches during that time with gusts of up to 45 miles an hour. Highs tomorrow around 70, then sunshine for the weekend. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include LabShares Newton with state-of-the-art, fully equipped BL2 lab space just outside Cambridge. Learn more at labshares.com. And the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Peer-led courses, speakers, and more. Apply now for 2023. The Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We've been talking this week about the Paycheck Protection Program, which effectively paid businesses to keep workers on the payroll during the pandemic. That money came in the form of loans, and the vast majority of those loans have been forgiven more than 90 percent. That is, despite the program being criticized for giving money to undeserving recipients, even outright fraudsters. So who are the small percentage of borrowers with unforgiven PPP loans? Austin Fast and I have been reporting on this for NPR's investigations team, and what we found may surprise you. When I visited Candy Crawford at her home in Truro, Massachusetts, on Cape Cod, she gave me a tour of her truck, which she jokingly calls her purse on wheels. Because it's got everything and anything in there. If I need a saw, I have a saw. Um, and then just whatever debris coming from gardens, bags of fertilizer up in the front. I mean, it's a hodgepodge. Crawford owns a small landscaping company called Handy Candy. When COVID shutdowns began, she got a PPP loan of about $1,000. Not much, but it tided her over until she was allowed to start working outdoors again. I mean, it's always wonderful to get $1,000 in the mail. So it was just like a little extra cash, which was great. But trying to get that loan forgiven has been an aggravation she never expected. Crawford got the loan through PayPal rather than a traditional bank. Applying was easy, but a few months later, she got some confusing emails. They said her loan had been transferred from Web Bank to Customers Bank and would now be serviced by Windsor Advantage. She'd never heard of any of those companies, and she wondered if this was some kind of scam. It wasn't. Crawford ended up being bounced from company to company to company for months as she tried to figure out the status of her loan and how to get it forgiven. I would say we probably have at least 60 emails going back and forth, at least. This is crazy. Pass the buck. Who is going to answer my question for me? PPP loans were easy to get and easy to forgive. But more than two years after Crawford got hers, she was still waiting for forgiveness. That put her in a small minority of borrowers because 91% of all the loans have been forgiven so far. The money was for businesses with no more than 500 workers. But NPR has found the smallest businesses, those with just one employee, have the most unforgiven loans, 14%. That number is just 3% for businesses with at least 10 employees. Those one-person businesses include barbers, janitors, Uber drivers, hairdressers. They seem like obvious examples of the type of workers who would most need support. Hi. How are you? Good. I'm Sasha. I'm Katie. Katie, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. You too. Katie Escher co-owns a Cape Cod clothing and gift shop called Artichoke in East Ham, Massachusetts. It's one of dozens of tiny businesses we contacted whose loans are still listed as unforgiven. Right here, you're seeing a lot of our salt t-shirts because that's our most popular design. Our hats in the collection, tumblers, sweatshirts. Artichoke got an $8,000 loan through Square. That's the company lots of businesses use to take credit card payments. But when Escher asks Square about her forgiveness status, it tells her to ask the SBA, the Small Business Administration. I don't know what to do. I can't get a hold of the SBA. And then when I talk to a human being on Square, They tell us to contact the SBA. So we're just in teeter-totter land here. We heard about headaches like this from a bunch of people with PPP loans. And some borrowers make errors that end up botching their applications. Escher said if you're a busy small company with no support staff, you can't delegate the work. 
we wear many hats and sometimes you have to choose which hat you have to wear based on the season or the time. I wish that we had someone to say, hey, we need to figure this out, but we don't. We also spoke with people who said they got bad advice from accountants or didn't understand the rules. Others told us they just haven't gotten around to applying for forgiveness or thought it was automatic. One woman I called, a hair braider in Arizona, asked if I could give her information about her loan status. Meanwhile, unforgiven loans may be past due and accumulating interest. Not resolving them can damage a person's credit. And there's a more nefarious reason some loans remain unforgiven. By the government's own admission, billions of PPP dollars were lost to fraud. It went to fictitious companies. Here's MIT economist David Otter. They just ran away with money. They never existed. They got the money. They're gone. They won't be paying it back because <laughs> they left the country if they were ever here. But a major reason some businesses have unforgiven loans has to do with where they applied for the money. Some borrowers got loans from traditional banks like Chase and Bank of America. Those loans are mostly forgiven. But if you went through a financial technology company, that's a different story. These fintechs, as they're called, have names like Wompley, Lendistry, and Prestamos. Several fintechs have been investigated by Congress for ultra-fast lending practices that led to high rates of fraudulent PPP loans. Maybe you've heard of some of them. Bluevine, Cross River Bank, Celtic Bank, and Cabbage. The amount of stress caused by dealing with Cabbage, that almost was like a second catastrophic event. Nancy Kelly owns a small accounting firm that got a PPP loan for $60,000 through Cabbage. That part was simple. Getting it forgiven was not. And she realized she was far from alone when she discovered a Facebook group for Cabbage customers. All these small businesses, they were just torturing them. And I said to myself, well, this should be the basis of a class action lawsuit. Actually, it is. Cabbage has been sued in federal court. The suit claims Cabbage was quick to approve PPP loans. It brags on its website about an average wait time of four hours, but dropped the ball when it came to forgiving them. In an email to NPR, the CEO of K-Servicing, a Cabbage affiliate, wrote, We will continue to work with our borrowers to help ensure they take the steps required to obtain forgiveness by the SBA. But last week, Cabbage and K-Servicing filed for bankruptcy. The SBA said Cabbage specifically has gotten a lot of complaints, but it doesn't see a broader problem with financial technology companies. It also said some fintech loans may not be forgiven because borrowers are procrastinating or their forgiveness applications aren't due yet. The SBA said it expects most remaining loans to be forgiven this fall. Back on Cape Cod, Candy Crawford of Handy Candy Landscaping nearly reached her wit's end trying to get her $1,000 loan forgiven when at one point a customer service agent told her her loan had a problem and there was a hold on it. I said, hold? What does that mean? She said, I am not able to disclose that information to you. I said, okay, so this is my loan, but you can't tell me why my loan has a hold? She said, no, I can't tell you anything about it. I'm like, wow. After I met Crawford, I contacted all the companies involved in her loan. A few days later, she got an email that read, we are pleased to announce that the Customers Bank Forgiveness Portal is now ready to accept your forgiveness request. And last week, she learned that more than two years after she got her loan, it's been forgiven. But for many other businesses, the quest for PPP loan forgiveness continues. I'm Austin Fast. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer, NPR News. 
And NPR's Sierra Lyons also contributed to this story. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival in Copley Square on Saturday, October 29th. Subjects range from The Body Keeps the Score to Finding Joy. And hear from authors Dr. Deborah Burks on the pandemic to Moshe Safdie on architecture. From memoir and history to fantasy and mystery, there's something for everyone, including the kids. BostonBookFest.org and the Bull Run Restaurant in Shirley. Farm-to-table dining and live music. Now booking holiday parties. More info at bullrunrestaurant.com.